Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We've known of the Okeechobee battle and its site since that encounter on Christmas Day, 1837, near that Great Lakes northern shore in the southern Florida peninsula. But then we forgot. We forgot the battle and we forgot the site, other than a marker from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Instead, by the 1980s, we knew the vicinity of the battle, but didn't have any artifacts or other archeological evidence to definitively say the battle was held here. When a housing developer canvassed the area in 1985, the consultants hired came up with only dry holes. Still, a handful of history hunters and friends of the site and event pulled out their own shovels and smarts to settle the matter. One of those stalwarts is Willard S. Steele, or Bill as we know him. He researched and rushed out a book on the Battle of Okeechobee in 1985. He did this so the public could be informed better about the battle and why the site deserved to be preserved. Bill's work is centered around many of the most significant battle sites and villages associated with the history of the Seminole Tribe of Florida. As a contractor for the Archaeological and Historical Conservancy from 1982 to 2012, Bill scoured the area for signs of the battle and then performed gumshoe research work by identifying contemporary accounts of the battle so he could pinpoint locations on the actual battlefield. At roughly the same time, Bill managed operations at History Miami from 1984 to 1990. In 2002, the Seminole Tribe of Florida hired Bill as their tribal archivist and, shortly thereafter, appointed him as the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, a position he held for 10 years. Even after 35 years and more on the case, Bill continues to discover new facets of the battle and the battlefield. He joins us today to discuss all of this. Bill Steele, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to be here. Bill, what was your part in rediscovering the Okeechobee battlefield? Well, in April of 1985, the guy that I used to work with, Bob Carr, down in Miami, received a call from Piper and Associates, Miss Seabury, and they were doing an archaeological survey of what became Kings Bay development. And at the time, there was a National Register location and a State Register location for the historic site that actually were contradictory. Their survey that they conducted on the Kings Bay property had not turned up anything. Their conclusion was that unless additional archival or artifactual evidence was found, there was really no indication that the battle had ever been fought there. And that was their conclusion. That led to 16-year archaeological and historical study of the Battle of Okeechobee property, which eventually led to the acquisition of the property by the state in, I think it was 2006 or something. So it was really more like 20 years. In reconstructing the evidence of the location of the battlefield, we came up with about well, 55 accounts, of which 40 or so were first-hand accounts of people that were actually in the battle. And we used those, for instance, people that were on the 
eastern side of the army's battle line crossed the stream. The people that were on the western side of the battle line didn't cross it. The people that had come to the battlefield later to take a look at it thought that the swamp was a half mile wide, but the people who had fought in the battle thought that it was two-thirds of a mile wide. Well, that was because the people who had fought in the battle traversed it at an angle. And all of these things eventually showed you, once we located Taylor's campsite up on the Douglas property, we used the Prince Diary map, which we got from Frank Laumer back a long time ago. We used the Prince map to locate where the battlefield should have been. And eventually, if you look at the section lines and where the monument was actually placed is where that stream entered the ridge that was the defensive position of the Indian. So once you saw all of this, suddenly you realized <laughs> you could almost go out and stand where the 6th Infantry was or where the 4th Infantry was. Turns out the 4th Infantry was actually on the Kings Bay property, and the 6th Infantry would have been on the property behind the flea market and behind the church. And, of course, the battle itself took up the whole ridge from Nubbin Slough all the way up to Taylor Creek. The book came out of all the research that we did, which took about 20 years, really, although the book was printed in 1986. But the research that we did over the years is where all the information in the book came from. As a matter of fact, the funny thing about the book was we were in such a hurry to get it out that it doesn't have a bibliography or any references or anything. Meanwhile, we had 55 contemporary accounts for the 12 pages of the battle alone. It was an extremely well-researched book and poorly recorded. There's no question that you found the battlefield, but in all that time since 1985, you have learned some things that add to our understanding about the battle and the battlefield. Yes. As a matter of fact, since then, and even recently, I've gone back and started to reconstruct how we came up with the location of the site and the actual history that we wrote. Hyper consultant found nothing. Now, meanwhile, in 1974, Bob Carr had actually done a survey out there and was the person responsible for the state site location. And two years later, in 1976, it was determined to be a National Register site. So they contacted Bob because he was on the record as being the archaeologist who had recorded the site back in 74. And they asked him what evidence he had, and it was based on locals uh, that had told him where the site was and uh, Zachary Taylor's battle account. Now, the hyper people ended up including that there was nothing archaeological there that they could prove, and they did not have enough historic documentation to prove that the site was there. So they were countering the idea that the historic site was there. Well, we took up the gauntlet, so to speak, and started in 1986 to do a series of research projects that lasted about 20 years uh, because, in fact, the location of that battlefield was very difficult. <laughs> I realize that Bob Carr did his assessment roughly 140 years after the battle, but for an undeveloped area... It is curious that nobody could say definitively that the battlefield was at this location, or at least be believed when they said this is the location. It seems hard to believe, but the battle was fought on a lake that wasn't even on the John Williams map in 1837. Nobody really knew anything about the interior of the state of Florida. As Jessup said, we have as much knowledge of the interior of Florida as we have of the interior of China, 
And when the Williams map of 37 actually omitted the largest lake in the southeast, it just goes to show how little they knew about the place. So they end up fighting a battle on Christmas Day on the edge of the great unknown out there, the lake that nobody knew was there. Really, the idea of where the battle was fought, there have been many ideas about where it was fought. I mean, there are actual theories that have it placed on the Kissimmee River, which, of course, is a pretty green mistake. But it goes back to 1893 when the first white settler, Peter Rollerson, moved there. And people who were relatives that he believed that Taylor's camp was in East Okeechobee and the battle was fought somewhere near 441, but just a general statement. In 1929, Reverend E.M.C. Dunklin, his theory was widely accepted in 1986, which was the battle was fought at Evergreen Cemetery, part of the north, and down both sides of Taylor Creek. And he had a cannonball that was found on Parrott Avenue, where the Indian hospital was, and that the Indians were buried at near Freeze's store. Well, we ended up finding Freeze's store, and Freeze's store actually had an Indian burial mound next to it. So the Indians from the battle were not buried there. They were actually prehistoric Indians. The cannonball was in the possession of Judge William Hendry in 1986, and he showed it to us, and I understand why he thought it was a cannonball, because that's what it looked like. But it had a spot in it, and people thought it was, well, it's chain shot. Well, chain shot is naval. That's what you knock masks down with on ship. So it didn't make much sense that a chain shot was out there. But what it turned out was it was a ball and chain from a chain gang. It wasn't a cannonball at all. In 1939, WIC had a totally different theory and placed the battle over in Sherman, Florida, and that they had fought across Nubbin Slough and down towards Lake Okeechobee. Actually, Albert Devane interpreted that as being one and a half miles northeast of where the historic marker was placed. In 57, Park Devane worked with Billy Bullegs III from Brighton, and they actually got to the Douglas property where we eventually found Taylor's campsite. But they were on the northwest corner of the property, a few hundred yards away. Billy Bullegs pointed southwest from there, which would have been to where Taylor Creek enters the lake and said that his mother had said that the battle was fought down that way somewhere. In 72, a guy named J. Floyd Monk wrote a 400-page tome about the battle. And when I interviewed him, he had no opinion about it, except that Park Devane probably knew where it was. But Park Devane by that time was dead. In 1974, but as I said, Bob Carr had actually used local information, local informants, and Taylor's report to establish a state-designated boundary. In 76, a federal national register also used locals and some secondhand references, but they put it in a totally different place, or at least it didn't overlap very much. So by 1986, documentation of the site was totally confusing. There were so many different theories as to where it actually was, and it was a total of a cannonball, a stirrup, and an 1832 half dollar that were artifactual from the site. The cannonball turned out to be a ball and chain, or thermal ball and chain. The stirrup was a World War I McClellan saddle stirrup, which was very common after World War I. The local Florida Cowboys got those McClellan saddles, like, really cheap. But the 1832 coin, which was found just where 441 crosses Taylor Creek on the left side, a man's father came back from World War II, and he was putting in light posts next to the river, and this black thing came out of the ground, and he took it home, 
and his kid knocked it off the kitchen table when it broke open. It was a mere mint 1832 half dollar. And we think that it's possible that that was actually dropped during the battle, but of course it was on the west side of the river. None of the artifacts really were helping it. And Piper, when they said they couldn't find anything, well, it seemed strange at the time, but it did take us at least until 2006 to really nail down, about 20 years to really nail down the location of, of the place. It might be easy to find fault with Piper, but that would not be fair. And looking at the work that Piper and Associates did on the property, they did standard shovel tests. It really reveals the failings of archaeology for historic sites. And that's one of the other things that was going on. When we first started looking for the battlefield ourselves, we had already come to a conclusion, having worked on some seminal sites in Baden Broward County, that metal detecting really was a much better way of doing a survey than doing a 20-meter shovel test, a shovel test there in a 20-meter grid, because you could actually, in theory, put a 20-meter grid of shovel test in an existing cemetery and missed all the graves and conclude there wasn't a cemetery there. Uh, You really have to have an understanding of the failings of the methodology, because they find the highest probability area, they put the densest set of sites, which is usually 20 meters, and if they don't find anything, then the results are negative. And that works in broader forms of archaeological sites. It works in hammocks sometimes because you can make them smaller, 10 meters or whatever. It can fail. And at the time, out west, they were working on the Custer battlefield, and Scott and Fox were out there working on the battlefield, and they had actually brought in the local metal detector group which at the time, professional archaeologists had a tendency to look at metal detecting groups as looters and were very against, or at least to some degree, against using metal detector people. Uh, And they were the people that had the proficiency in it because the metal detectors in those days weren't like they are now. You really had to have a certain proficiency in using one because they weren't very user-friendly. And you couldn't just pick one up. I remember... When we started the project, I went to a friend of ours who used one, and he showed me how to use it. And I said, wow, I don't know. And he said, oh, in a couple of years, you'll have it. And he said, a couple of years? I'm going out there this weekend. And he said, yeah, in a couple of years, you'll get it. And he was kind of right. And the machines, fortunately, are much better now. But the thing was that we were working with the people from the Custer Battlefield Project, a guy named Scott was telling us numerous things, like, for instance, don't put a white and a white next to each other because their signals will cause them to feed that. You have to put a garret and then a white and a garret and a white and a garret and a white because they were using different signals in those days. And just all sorts of things, use plastic pin flags so that you can flag everything and not dig it up. And that way you can map everything before you map, before you dig things up. Because the real problem with metal 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 detector groups was that they were digging things up and not necessarily accurately mapping them. Um, at the Loxahatchee Battlefield, the people that saved that site were metal detector people that had raised heck about the fact that they knew there was a battlefield there because they'd found a ton of artifacts. And they had given them to uh, Florida Atlantic University, which was very good of them. But they hadn't mapped hardly any, anything. So we had sent a person into the woods where they had found a lot of uh, buck and ball. And uh, after a couple of days, somebody came to me. I was digging a unit, and it was across, I was across the river. And um, 
somebody said, so have you talked to Don lately? And I said, no, but I'm like working on this unit. And they said, no, have you talked to Don? No, I'm working on the unit. No, you need to talk to Don. So I got in the truck and I drove across the river and I went into the woods and Don had placed about 200 pin flights in a straight line. They weren't any more than a foot left to right and 200 feet long, you know, just all through the woods, hundreds of flights. And I was like, my God, Don, what is that? And he said, it's all buck and ball. And I was like, my God, it's the Tennessee Volunteer Battle Line. You're standing in their footprints. And he said, yeah. And the fact was that the people that had found a lot of buck and ball in those woods had never noticed that they were in a straight line. And because of that, we were able to record the exact location where the Tennessee Volunteers were standing as they were fighting in the Battle of Loxahatchee. Whereas the people that had used the metal detectors before us, with all of their good intent, with the fact that they gave everything to the university, by not correctly mapping it, had really lost the context to the whole thing. So when we were working at Okeechobee, we were working very carefully with the people on the federal property out in the Black Hills, the Custer Battlefield. Because they rewrote the history of the Custer battlefield. They found places where battles were fought that nobody knew anything was going on. They found out that nothing happened where there was supposed to be big fights. And when they finally read their report in public, fistfights broke out in the aisles because historians who had written about this thing for years were seeing their histories being torn apart. It got so controversial that they had to publish they were originally going to publish, I think, in Nebraska or something. I had to publish it in Oklahoma because the, the first people who were going to publish it decided not to. That is the archaeological report for the uh, Custer's Battlefield. And when they finally published it, Scott decided he knew what he was going to put on the cover of the report. And it was a drawing of dozens of people with metal detectors walking across the Custer Battlefield in a straight line who were the people that had actually helped rewrite the history of the Custer Battlefield. And he did it because he knew that people were not happy about it, but it worked. And at Okeechobee, the fact is that the methodology used to find prehistoric sites in Florida completely failed to even notice they were standing right on top of the Okeechobee Battlefield. So we started, or at least with some of the earlier people, to use both metal detectors and we used ground-penetrating radar to locate the burials of the soldiers in the middle of Taylor's campsite. Once we found Taylor's campsite, we gave a 200-foot square on the ground to a company that was really anxious to try to get people to use ground-penetrating radar because it was something that almost nobody had really heard of or ever used. So some of the first use of ground-penetrating radar in archaeology that has to have been because it was 1986, used on the Okeechobee battlefield in locating two graves of the soldiers at the Taylor campsite. So really, the fact that Piper had attempted to use in a proper sense the archaeology of the day and it failed gave us impetus to really start a whole new way of doing things in Florida as far as historic archaeology went came out of the Okeechobee project. Bill, I talked to history hunter Steve Carr and his efforts at the Okeechobee Battlefield seem to have been complementary to what you were doing. Oh, yeah. And Steve was one of the people in the Wayback Machine. He was at Loxahatchee also. So Steve Carr has been around for a long time doing this also. I've only really met him, I think, once at Loxahatchee or something. So I can't really say much about Steve. I don't know him very well. I listened to the Belling Watford tape the other day. And I heard him talking about Steve. And I really didn't even know that Steve had found all that material. So I'm going to have to look into that. But speaking of Dowling, 
you know, Dallin Watford, Becky Williams and her father, Sean Henderson, were always very far in the forefront of helping us. You know, we spent a lot of time out there, and it really was the help of the local people getting interest in this thing that kept it going. did it pretty much, I think, for 16 years, we got paid $500. And I'm not saying we wanted to get paid. It's just that somebody finally got around to giving us gas money, I guess. But we actually supported doing the Okeechobee project with other projects. Like when we did the Cutler Fossil Site down at the Deering Estate, some of the money that we got paid to do that project, we ended up turning around and using on Okeechobee. Other contracts really paid for most of the Okeechobee work. Essentially, it was funny. In 2001, I think 16 years into the project, I was standing at the Department of Environmental Protection. We were giving about the sixth presentation to them, trying to convince them to buy the property. And I'm standing in the back of the room and I'm looking down at the aerials and everything I'm going to use as a presentation. I'm looking down at my presentation, which has all these maps. And as I'm looking at it, I was thinking about the fact that a, uh, a surveyor in the county who had worked with an older survey one time reestablishing the corner lines, corner posts of all the surveys in the county, he actually told me that in one place where they were reestablishing a corner, the old surveyor would point towards the cypress tree and tell him, yeah, dig in the tree right there with your knife. And he would dig in the tree and find a mustard bowl. And the old surveyor had had to find hack marks on tr old trees. And he got so good at looking at the grain of cypress that he could actually find these old survey marker trees. But he also got to the point where he started seeing where trees had been shot. And apparently when he came down to this one corner, he'd seen that the trees had all been shot and couldn't figure it out and started digging musket balls out of the trees and realized, oh my God, this is the battlefield. Well, at the time, oh, it was Robbie Hoover was who it was. At the time, Robbie Hoover told me this. I thought the battlefield was further west, so I discounted it. But once we got the print map, and it moved the whole battlefield east about a half mile, once we got that, and once we found that stream that everybody on the left flank of the Army mentioned but didn't, wasn't mentioned on the right, and we realized where the center of the battlefield really was, I'm looking at the aerial, and lo and behold, there's two things that dawn on me. First of all, dead center in the middle of a battlefield is the stone monument. And the monument is on a section line. When the monument was placed, there were three people that placed the monument. It was a committee. There was H.H. Hancock, there was W.I.C., and there was Peter Rollerson. Well, Peter Rollerson never really left much of an account where the battle was, nothing specific. W.I.C. thought the battle was fought up in Sherman, Florida, which is like a mile and a half northeast of there. Hancock had left no account whatsoever. But then I realized that Robbie Hoover had given me Hancock's account, which was that the surveyors had found the musket balls in the trees on the section line, and that's where they put the monument, dead on the section line at the ridge. So I finally realized why the monument was where it was. And it was funny because after spending 20 years of looking through the battlefield to figure out that the monument was in the center of it the whole time was just fantastic. And of course, yeah, you would think, duh, of course. Well, without any real documentation or without any artifacts, you really couldn't prove it, except for the fact that they were right. <laughs> so that was an enlightening experience. But never argue with your elders. That's what you should think out of that one. <laughs> so 35 years after the battle, how have your perceptions changed, if at all? 
my perception of the battlefield, fortunately, I did something with all the evidence that we've acquired in the last now 35 years. Anyway, with all the evidence that we've acquired in all these years, I don't believe that the book changes at all because what I did at the time, we had so many firsthand accounts, something like 35 firsthand accounts of the battle. And I looked at it and I realized something. When the 6th Infantry opened fire, everybody said where they were. And it was interesting because the battle starts off and something like 40 minutes later or something, the 6th Infantry opens fire. Well, at the beginning of the battle, you know where everybody is. And at 40 minutes into the battle, you suddenly find out where everybody is now because they all say, and at this point, the 6th Infantry opened to our left. The 6th Infantry opened in front of us. The 6th Infantry opened to our right. Or they said where they were, and then they said, oh, and this is when the 6th Infantry opened fire. So what I did was I took all of the accounts, I don't know, 30, 30 some of them or whatever, and I figured out where they were standing on the battlefield. So I would have, I ordered them on the floor of my house from left to right so that I ended up with all these accounts and they would be designated left one, left two, left three, left four, right center one, or left center one, left center two, you know, and all that. And they all had these letter number designations saying where they were. So they would be right center 12 was to the right of right center 11. And they were all to the right of left center. So I gave designations to all of them. And then I started cutting the, their accounts into pieces and putting them all before or after the 6th Infantry opening fire. And what I got out of it was a spatial and chronological positioning of every one of the people in the battle. So that I knew where John Sconce was standing when the 6th Infantry opened fire versus where Henley was standing, or where Gentry was standing, or Gentry's son, who was right and behind his father, you know? I literally knew where people were standing at these various times, and they were telling you what happened to them up to that point and after that point. So the fact was that the whole thing could have been done without knowing where the battlefield was or what state it was in. Because everything was ordered spatially and chronologically based on the first-hand account. The interesting thing was that I actually drew maps that showed them being on both sides of the ditch that runs down to the monument. And now that we know exactly where they were, that's exactly where they were. And I did that based on the accounts. But it didn't dawn on me in the early days that we had these additional things like, oh, for instance, the people on the left side of the army all mentioned the stream and the people on the right side didn't uh, because they didn't cross it because they were crossing where the church is. They weren't crossing where King's Bay was because the stream used to run through King's Bay, you know, but it came out into the ridge right there where the monument was. And anything to the left of that, when you cross the swamp, you wouldn't cross the stream. I have written things that when I look back on it, I think, well, this, I now know better than this, or I now know better than that. But I tried to, with the book, make sure that they were telling the story, not me. Because the hardest thing for a historian to do is to eliminate your own biases. And it is impossible to some degree, because your first bias is how you collect your information, you know, and it just goes on from there. The best thing you can do is to try to let the people that are there tell the story. For instance, 
When it comes to the Missouri Volunteers being reckless, which is something that the, the regulars said about the Volunteers, and it seems that when Zachary Taylor designed the battle plan, the Missouri Volunteers believed that they were supposed to be in the front and advancing with the support of the 6th Infantry. General Taylor later said, Colonel Taylor at the time, later said, and actually told an officer named Stance of the Missouri Volunteers, he said, you used your men too forwardly and cost, cost them their lives. And Taylor said that they were supposed to start the engagement and then form behind the 6th Infantry. Well, in a very short period into the battle, an officer on the left wing of the 6th Infantry took his men into the hammock to get out from being fired at from the right because the center of the 6th Infantry no longer existed. As a matter of fact, uh, one account says that he looked to his right and realized the 6th Infantry had ceased to exist, so he took his men into the hammock. So it would have been pretty hard for the Missouri Volunteers to fall behind them considering that they actually had been pretty much destroyed. There was one company that had four men left in it. There was only one officer left standing in five companies. Well, I tell you, there is one other thing. I don't know. Are you still recording, I guess? Yeah. Well, there is one other thing that, that was interesting. The Prince map had shown us where the battlefield was later on. It, originally, we were using the Prince map, and it wasn't helping very much because it showed the Pinelands, it showed the swamp, and it showed the ridge. Well, there's a Pineland swamp and ridge all around the north end of the lake. It could be anywhere. But the Denny's map from Missouri actually showed a stream running behind Taylor's campsite. And finally got that map, and one Sunday or something, I'm looking at the map, and suddenly I see the stream. And there it was. There was a stream. And I was like, oh, my God, now I know where Taylor's camp is. And I took an aerial, and I drew a square on the aerial. And I called up Bob Carr and I said, Bob, can I have like $35 credit, go up to Okeechobee? And he had me come over to his house and I got like 35 bucks or whatever. And I went home and he called me back and said, look, I want you to come into the office tomorrow because we've got to have this report done by the end of the week. And, you know, maybe you thought you were going to find this battlefield for like 10 years now or whatever. And it's been years. Why don't you just come in and finish your report first? So the next morning, I got up and drove straight to Okeechobee. I went up, and I crawled through a fence, and I walked across the Douglas property, the cow pasture or whatever it is, and I took the metal detector out, and I started metal detecting, and exactly where I had drawn the line on the blue line aerial, I started hitting musket balls, camp kettle fragments, all this stuff, and then the metal detector broke. And I couldn't believe it. I, I've been looking for this battlefield for years, and the first evidence that we ever found of it, five minutes into the euphoria of finally finding the thing, the metal detector stops working. So I get back in the car, I drive back down to Miami, and it's so early that when I walk into Bob's office, he thinks I'm just coming to work. And he says, well, yeah, don't worry about that, Bill. We'll go back up there like next week or something. He said, actually, I was, I was there today, and I reached over and I dropped the musket balls on his desk. And he was like, what the hell is this? And I said, it's Taylor's campsite. And he was totally like, what? And um, so, yes, it was, uh, the whole thing was a very interesting experience. But, uh, but yeah, so what had happened was that the Denny's map then became our focus for a long time because we thought, well, it showed us where Taylor's campsite, so it must be accurate about where the battlefield was. Well, it turned out it did not have, it knew exactly where Taylor's campsite was. It showed it to us but everything else is wrong. Later on, I started scaling the Prince map 
on plastic printing so that you could lay the plastic over top of modern maps. I was making overlays, and it suddenly dawned on me that the Prince map, except for the fact that it didn't have the stream in the back, the Prince map actually showed the exact outline of the ridge that runs on the north side of the lake there. And it has these bumps. And one of those bumps was an Indian defensive position, and it actually showed it on the Prince map, and I mean exact to scale. But Denny's map showed them coming straight south across the swamp. The Prince map shows them going southeast across the swamp at a diagonal. And as it turns out, that's what they did. Once we had the Prince map scaled out on top of the USGS, well, everything else fell in line, blue line aerial. It was the diary of Henry Prince's map that we got from Frank Laumer that eventually located the battlefield. So you say it was called the Denny's map. The only Denny's map I know involves crayons and a kid's meal. Denny's map, it was D-I-N-N-I-E-S, and it was printed probably in St. Louis. So it was printed in Missouri. And it was part of the whole Missouri Volunteers argument about their service in Florida. The good thing about Taylor making disparaging remarks about them is that they ended up leaving dozens of accounts of what they actually did, which ended up helping both write the book and eventually locate the battlefield. Regarding the Missouri Volunteers, this led to a bit of gumshoe detective work on your part to identify an official report on their actions that seemingly was lost. People knew that there was a committee formed in Missouri that sent a report to Washington with accounts of the battle, but nobody seemed to be able to find it. As a matter of fact, J. Floyd Monk, who had written a 400-page book on the subject, had attempted to get the state of Missouri to cough it up, but they said they didn't have the report. I was up at the National Archives, and I was talking to an overly friendly person who worked at the National Archives, and many of them are just overly helpful, I should say. I was looking at catalogs that gave a history of each one of the record groups, and they were printed back in the 70s, I think. I was looking at it, and the guy said, they're not going to print these again because they're too expensive, and we're running out of them. I said, really? And he said, yeah, if you want one, just write down a list of the ones that you might want, and I'll make sure you get them. I'd spent three months going through all of the record groups to try to determine where records might be. So I really was the right person to ask that question to because I knew where all the information probably was. And I gave him a request for about, geez, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 of these folders, books to all these record groups. I always remember a lady I knew at the time, she said, when I saw the, the postman come up the driveway, he looked like he was struggling, and it's because he had this huge box just filled with all the guides to record groups. And one of them, one of the adjutant general's records, maybe record group 92, and strangely enough, I open it up, it's trying to tell you what use this record group might be for research. And about three pages in, and it says, well, here's an example of the things that are in these record groups. And it gave an example of about 12 things. Now, consider how many millions upon millions of records are in the Adjutant General's records. All the letters the Secretary of War had received, they actually said in there, and yes, on roll 92, this, that, and the other thing will be Committee on the Conduct of the War, Missouri Volunteers. And I was like, oh, my God, there it is. That's the account. And I ended up getting it on microfilm and uh, printed it out, and that was my first copy of it. I sent a request to the State Museum in St. Louis, I think it was, about the Missouri Volunteer flag, which is still out there, to get some idea of what it looked like. 
and somewhere along the line, I found out that they still had a copy of that report, contrary to what they'd said like 20 years earlier to somebody else. got an actual photocopy of the original. So I have two copies of that report, one from Surrey and one from the National Archives. Basically the same, but it was funny because somebody years earlier had tracked it down, but the people running the museum just didn't seem to know they had it at the time. Taylor had a couple of accounts. There's actually a number of other accounts. The Maryland Historical Society, they had an officer of the fourth who left a diary, and he left an account. And then there's also things in historical journals. I think there's one of him in a historical journal. A lot of the stuff really was Missouri Volunteers, and then there was two accounts that Taylor had, and then while I was working as the archivist for the Seminole Tribe of Florida, we received some information that somebody wanted to sell us a letter that had been written by Zachary Taylor, December 26, 1837, on a torn and very dirty sheet of paper that Zachary Taylor said, I'm now writing by the light of lighter knots as light on a torn and very dirty sheet of paper, which is the only one in camp. They had exactly one piece of paper left in camp. It was torn and dirty. It was Zachary Taylor's first account of the battle. And we bought that back around 2001 or two when I was working as the archivist at the Atatiki Museum. They have it at the museum, and anybody can see it if they go down and request it because... We might not think this would be of interest to the Seminole Tribe and their museum. We would be wrong. The Seminole Tribe of Florida has quietly acquired the largest collection of early 19th century southeastern beaded bags, moccasins, all sorts of beadwork, more than the Smithsonian has. They've also collected a perfect Paul's flintlock rifle. They were a technological breakthrough, but they were impractical for soldiers on the move. They worked much better as a defensive weapon in a fortress or fortification. Ray Jerome used to actively seek out any artifact, military equipment, or anything that might be useful to the museum. And we have a lot of stuff thanks to Ray Jerome. And I mean some of the stuff. If you can imagine having a mint Hall's flintlock rifle, it's just a beautiful thing. But we also have a guy named Mayer. He was a sergeant in the Army. I can't remember what unit he was in now. But in the 1830s or 40s, he sent home a ton of letters talking about what was going on in the Seminole War. The headline of one of them was camp 150 miles from any place. And he was telling his wife that, yeah, they say that the Indians are just about beat now and are likely to come in. But frankly, I think that old Sam is just a little too smart at all for this. They may know better than I, but I just don't see how that's going to happen. It's a really interesting letter. We actually have a collection of his letters. We have the Davenport letters at the Taking Museum. We have In Creek Country by Benjamin Hawkins, as copied by Governor of Georgia, who is notorious because he became the next Indian agent after Hawkins. What happened was we have a contemporary copy up in Creek Country, which was written by Benjamin Hawkins, which is the most detailed accounting of the Creek Indians, villages, leaders, numbers of people, crops, number of horses, whatever, just everything in Creek country from 1799 and have it in manuscript written by the governor of Georgia. I think it was published in the 1930s. I don't know if it's been published since then. The museum has all this stuff. They have individual letters that are just incredible. I got a request one time. Guy calls me up and 
He had sent me a brochure on stamps, whatever that is called, like when you buy stamps, collectible stamps. I couldn't understand why he was sending me this catalog on all these collectible stamps. He called me up and he said, so did you look at number 112? And I was like, well, I, we're not necessarily interested in stamps. He says, letter from the Wave. He was selling these, it wasn't just the stamps. It was the letter inside of it was from one of the officers on the Wave, the USS Wave during the Seminole War. Another one was from like, I don't know, the 1730s. And it was from the governor of South Carolina to the cowkeeper and other headmen of the Creek Indians of Florida. The reason why he had it was because it had the governor's seal on the outside of it. But the letter itself was asking cowkeeper whether or not his people were going to go to war with the British because they had given a treaty of like 22,000 acres of land or something. The Cherokee had given away the Creek's land to the English. The Creeks wanted to go to war with the Cherokee because they were giving away their land. And he wanted to know if the, if the Seminoles were going to get involved in it. That letter's at the museum. That's just the sort of stuff that's at the Altatiki Museum. They have just some incredible things. If you're interested in Militaria, if you're interested in Seminole material or bags or history or anything, it's probably, they've done a fantastic job of collecting this stuff. I tell you what, the mayor collection is amazing. It's really dozens of letters from a sergeant in the Army serving in Florida during the Seminole War. And the guy's really smart. He has a lot of very good observation. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Bill Steele, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been very nice. It's been very nice. I hope that uh, <laughs> some of it made sense. Anyway, yes, we'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.sumofwars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Summon Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.